Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, outage and outrage. Facebook shares plunging nearly 5% as a whistleblower sounds the alarm, and the company is hit with a massive service disruption. We're breaking down the fallout straight ahead, plus delivering gains. Tesla holding in the green despite today's sell-off will bring you the big number that had investors driving into this stock. And later, Karen ringing the register, the one retail name she hit the sell button on today. She'll tell us what it is and why it's time to bag it. But we start off with a major sell-off on Wall Street. The S&P dropping more than a percent. The Dow down over 300 points. The tech-heavy Nasdaq plunging more than 2%, posting its lowest close since June. And take a look at the hit to the biggest names in the space. Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, losing a combined $236 billion in market cap today alone. So is there more pain ahead? Do you go in and start buying? Guy, what do you think? Certainly, some of those names absolutely melt. More pain ahead, I think, for the broader market. And I've tried, I've tried to be consistent on this. You know, I've thought 4,100 in the S&P. I think we got down to 4,275 or so. I'll stand by that, although the way it traded today leads me to believe we'll probably see a bit of a bounce tomorrow. But, yeah, so if 4,100 is more pain, then, yes, more pain. But I do think for some of these names, you're getting to interesting levels. Below the surface, look at a name like NVIDIA. It's down 14% from its recent all-time high. AMD down 23%. So although the broader market has not caught up to those names, those names are starting to provide, I think, some interesting levels. We're going to talk about Facebook later. One place we've been pretty consistent on, I know Pete's here tonight, and Tim has been banging the table on this for a while, has been energy. And you look at it on a pretty lousy tape, energy was one of the few things that were green today. So there are areas at work, and I would stay with the ones that have been. I think energy, by the way, still has significant room to the upside. Yeah, higher on OPEC. Uh, Pete? You in energy, and, and where do you go in this market? I mean, what's your outlook? Do you think tech and, and sort of the higher valuation names remain vulnerable? Yes, and I still do like tech, Mel, to answer the, uh, both those questions. But I would say that energy materials, financials are still my top three. Energy is by far my biggest sector that I actually have ownership of, primarily in options, just because it's been so active. I'll give you a great example. Even today, Today, as the markets are absolutely cratering to the downside, we're seeing huge upside buyers in different ETFs, the XLE as well as, and that hit more than once, it hit actually twice today, the XOP. We see all kinds of different energy names, and that has been very, very consistent. We're actually pushing on almost doing this for an entire year back to November of last year, right after the election. So I still like the energy space. They continue to come after it. I'm going to continue to own it. I oftentimes will flip over into individual names rather than ETFs. I'd rather get the bigger bank for my buck. But it has been those beta names. It's been those names like Devon and Oxy and, 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 and Diamondback and those kind of names. Those are the ones that have really been catapulting up to the upside. And those are the ones that I still want to look at. I'll tell you what, as far as tech, though, Mel, I think my biggest concern is it's part of a rotational thing, I think, very much like we had last year. And then if you go back to last year and you look at the end of October, that's when technology started to really sprint towards the end of the year. But will that happen again? I kind of think it will. But um, right now, I have the positions that I've got. I have not been adding as much to technology as I normally would. I mean, that rotation is exactly what we saw today, Karen, in terms of outperformance um, when it came to some of the more defensive sectors like the utilities, but also the cyclical sectors on a relative basis, outperformance by energy, clearly, materials, industrials, mm -hmm. and financials, Karen. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And there was also a bit of a reopen trade. There was some strength there. If you look at names like Ulta, I think it actually closed positive on the day. Live Nation was down very little after a very big run. So, you know, we look at the market and we look at the, you know, the S&Ps and the Dow. I think that oh, was a big down day, but it actually wasn't a big down day. It was a big rotation day. So clearly fangs were, uh, you know, defanged today. But the high flyers, the ones with the super high multiples, did even worse. And um, that's been a trade we've been talking about for a while. I am still long, you know, Facebook, Apple, uh, Amazon, Microsoft. Uh, I'm long all of them except Netflix. Um, so I still like them. I understand why they're down. I still think that there are value within a market that isn't so value oriented. So I, I'm sort of inclined to stay with it. I know it's painful, but, you know, I have this little... Um, somewhat of a hedge with IGV, the high flyers. And I do think that we will see Fang do well again. I don't know when, but uh, I'm not a seller here. If you are inclined, Tim, to trade around your positions, is it time to take some money? Even if you do like the Fangs, is it time to take some money off the table? You know, I got an email today that I thought really encapsulated the market move, and that is tale of two Fangs. Yep. Fang, meaning the tech stocks. And Fang, meaning the energy stock. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, well, uh, again, and we, we've we've talked about that, and we've talked about uh, where there has been this rotation into energy because maybe these are not trades, maybe these are actually investments, and and certainly Fang, the oil and gas ticker, um, is is one of the best stories I think in the space, along with EOG. Where again, these are companies that are only looking at M and A if it's accretive. Uh, they are targeting free cash flow. They are targeting uh, who can have the higher, uh, essentially, uh, free cash flow return back to investors. And in, in, in the case of some of these companies, it's north of fifty percent. But back to the fact, most people know. I mean, look, a Amazon has done nothing since July of last year. It's flat year to date. Um, Apple's up seven and a half percent year to date. S&P's up 15 percent. So so the argument that that it's been a, uh, you know, a recent major pullback for for mega cap tech. And I don't think anyone here is necessarily saying that. But, yeah, I mean, this is this is something that that really in, has been an underperforming story for some time. Although if you look at the triple Q's and the Nasdaq 100, they've only really come off their uh, and diverged away from the S&P to the downside since mid-September when otherwise we're effectively trading at relative highs. So uh, what's also interesting about this, this rotation that people are attributing to higher rates, look, rates are right in the middle of a six-month range. I'm not telling you that they won't go higher. I think they will go a bit higher. I don't think they're going to go a lot higher. Um, but to get the anxiety around a major rate move, I just don't think that that is what this is attributable to. And I think some of this rotation is very healthy. Uh, Guy brings this up. We've all brought this up that at times the math just doesn't make sense for the overall index. Um, and therefore, if you're not getting participation from some of these uh, heavyweights in the index, you're going to have a little bit of a problem. But again, um, I, I think the, the energy cycle, Pete's trade, Pete's basket, and again, Pete saying he's most overweight energy is interesting because energy overall, and this isn't how Pete trades, and I'll let Pete talk about that at some point, but, but you know, energy's less than 4% of the S&P. It used to be at its peak closer to 20%. It's nowhere near that now. So people don't have to own it, but I think a lot of people are rotating in. What is energy as a percent of your portfolio, roughly, Pete? Just curious. Um, I would say that right now, Mel, on an average week, I probably have 45 to 50 option positions on, and I've probably got 15 of those are in the energy space itself. And then I've got a couple of stocks as well, Chevron and KMI. So I, I do have a lot of exposure there. But, 
you know, the thing about it, and, it, and it, I think Tim is right on so many different uh, sides of this whole thing. When you look at energy, it's a small piece of, of what we call the S&P long ago. is what used to be a monstrous piece. Now it's very small. But you know what? When you look at those individual names, especially the next tier down names, I keep calling them the beta names because they traded a two, a three, a four beta. Those are the names that have absolutely been rocking, Mel, and they continue to do so. In the derivatives world, they just buy them every single day to the point where it's almost fatiguing. And I wonder, should I continue to add to this? But I do just because that is where the option paper has been going. And the, it, all you've got to do is look at a one-year chart of oil, and you can see exactly why it's been a great trade. I think it continues to the upside. It sounds like Tim's bullish still to the upside as well. I still think there could be triple-digit oil maybe before the end of the year. Wow. Our next guest warns the tech slump could last a year. Jonathan Golub is the chief U.S. equity strategist, head of quantitative research at Credit Suisse. Jonathan, great to have you with us. Let's say the slump does last for a year. What does the market do with that context if, if technology is the leader? Yeah, I'm not sure that, that I, and I'm not sure that was the right quote, that I think tech is going to slump. What I, what I think I said was that I think that cyclicals are going to be a winner as long as we have disruptions in the labor market that are causing lots of inflation and that they just have more leverage and exposure to rising commodity prices like we're seeing today. And and disruption in supply chains tend to give them more pricing power and they have more operating leverage. And in that world, they, they just end up being uh, being a winner. But I don't, I'm not, you know, longer term, I, I think these growth names are going to be absolutely the right place to be, but not in a period of time when you have this kind of disruption in the market and economy. What is that period of time, Jonathan? I'm just trying to understand what investors should prepare themselves for in light of your call, your bullish call on cyclicals, what happens to tech in that context in the shorter term? I mean, it, well, it can't be a market where everything rises. I mean, I guess it could, but, but what do you see? Right. Well, no, I mean, so I mean, you're asking a couple of questions here. The first thing is, uh, how long, you know, how do I define this environment and how do I think about that? I mean, way back when the, the Fed was calling, way back when, maybe six months ago, the Fed was talking about inflation being transitory but I think that their view was that inflation was being driven by easy monetary policy and, and a lot of government stimulus. And now we're actually seeing that the aftermath of the, you know, of the initial pandemic is playing out with you know, shortages all over the place, supply chains and, you know, in, in the form of chips and, and, um, and labor everywhere that you look. And now you're seeing this in, in energy. And there's a real breakdown between supply and demand all throughout the economy and the idea that this is going to magically resolve itself in three to six months I think is going to be I think we're going to be um, disappointed that it's going to last a, a bit longer I don't know whether longer is 18 months or, or 36 months but these issues are going to take a little while they're going to get better but they're going to take a while to work through and the question that we have to ask is what types of companies tend to do well in this kind of environment and it's those companies with lots of fixed overhead you know if you have a software engineer they're going to ask for a raise if there's a lot of inflation but if you're a manufacturing company and you have equipment that you're leasing it doesn't get a raise it, it, it holds that same steady cost so those fixed overhead old-fashioned um businesses i i think not i think they are doing better here in delivering better profit growth um, just one more point on this. Value is expected to deliver, not the Credit Suisse view, 
consensus across all of Wall Street, value is expected to deliver faster EPS growth than growth stocks are for each of the next four quarters. I don't even remember a situation like that. Jonathan, Tim correctly points out that at one and a half percent, the 10 year yield smack in the middle of this range we've been in probably for the last nine to 10 months ish. Is there a level where, you know, you start to get very concerned in terms of what it means uh, for the equity markets? Yeah, I, I, I first of all, I, I think Tim's point is right. I mean, the, you know, a, a one and a half interest rate by itself should should not be a freak out at all. What is changing, though, just remember back to when we got the announcement about the Pfizer vaccine in, in early November and interest rates go from like 80 basis points to 170 over five months. What did the market do? It didn't sell off. It went crazy to the upside because it was the economy and the improvement in the economy that was driving interest rates. Now what's driving interest rates, and, and look when they, they, they shifted direction. On September 22nd, when the Fed basically signaled that November is when they're going to start tapering, and now you have higher interest rates being imposed on the market, and the market is basically saying they're not happy. That's the, that's, so it's not the level of rates, it's the tone, it's a loss of liquidity that I think right now is biting the market a little bit. Jonathan, great to speak with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Jonathan Golub, Credit Suisse. Karen, you know what struck me was, was when Jonathan threw out, we don't know how long some of these supply chain issues are going to last, and he just threw out, you know, off the cuff sort of, I don't know if it'll be 18 months or 36 months. That's a long time. I don't know if anybody really thought mm-hmm. it would be all the way up to three, three years, like uh, even as an outer, outer bound. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, but who knows? I, I would have thought that it actually would have been resolved by now. But I think that um, some of these issues will get resolved in terms of, I think, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of gridlock at the ports. I think that will get resolved. Some of the other things about supply chain and moving your supply chain, I think those are a little longer. So, um, but he makes an interesting point on, you know, this companies with fixed cost. And then when they have inflation, that's when they're able to pass on inflation to their customer. That's a great business for them. It's like a United Rental. Coming up, Facebook under fire. Shares of the social media giant plunging after a whistleblower blasts the company for putting profits over public safety. More on her accusations, plus the major outages that rock Facebook today. But first, a rare green spot in today's sea of red. Tesla driving higher after posting record EV deliveries. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks plunging in today's session. The Dow falling 323 points. But there was a green spot in today's session. Shares of Tesla speeding higher after the company announced record EV deliveries for the third quarter. Let's get to Phil LeBeau, who's got the details. Phil. Melissa, second straight quarter where it's record deliveries, record quarterly deliveries for Tesla. Take a look at the numbers. They delivered 241,300 vehicles in the third quarter. The vast majority of those, Model 3 and Model Y, they've done that now for two or three quarters. The deliveries overall up 97%. And because of this strong quarter, that is raising the estimate, the consensus in terms of what analysts are expecting on FactSet. Now for the entire year, 883,000 vehicles. Guys, we're getting close to a number of analysts saying they're going to deliver at least 900,000 vehicles, though they would really have to crank it out in the fourth quarter. For Tesla, remember, they have got two gigafactories that are close to opening up. They've got one out just outside of Berlin, Germany, and then they've got one just outside of Austin, Texas. In fact, 
Austin, Texas, is where Elon Musk will be on Thursday when the company holds its annual meeting. You're never sure what you get at the annual meeting from Elon Musk. Sometimes he makes news. Sometimes it's kind of rather mundane. But that's what we'll be focused on on uh, Thursday. And focused in on Wednesday will be General Motors. We're going to be looking at GM as they have an analyst day, an investor day, essentially, where they're going to be talking with the analysts about where the company is as it converts towards electric vehicles. Remember, GM said it wants to be all electric by 2035. They've got the Hummer EV coming out later this year. They've got a number of vehicles on tap to roll out, and they're putting $35 billion, Melissa, into electric and autonomous vehicles. That's going to be a big focus of the uh, investor day on Wednesday for General Motors. So a couple of important days coming up this week for GM and Tesla. Is Tesla's supply chain just far superior to a GM or a Ford who's had to cut production because of the shortages? I don't know if it's far superior, but they clearly have done a much better job managing the chip crisis than other automakers, including Ford and General Motors. And if you listened to the analysts today, if you read their notes, you didn't get a real lot of insight in terms of why Tesla is so much better than many of the other automakers. Although Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley said, look, I think it's a case where GM or excuse me, Tesla has put so much emphasis on working with some of these key suppliers, these chip companies, that they now are considered a strategic client in the eyes of some of these chip companies. doesn't mean that those companies are ignoring the other automakers, but it does make you wonder that they have really done a much better job in the last three to four months than other automakers managing this crisis. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. So, Guy, isn't, shouldn't this be factored into the value? I mean, I guess you can make an argument that it is factored into the valuation, but doesn't it demonstrate that Tesla can actually manage this very well, manage the production, which once upon a time was a knock on this company? No question about it, and I'm, I'm with you on that one. It was a knock, and justifiably so at the time, but listen, They seem to be growing into it and they're getting more mature in terms of a company and, quite frankly, in terms of uh, management style as well. I'm not going to make a case for this on valuation, but I will say you probably have anywhere from 35 to 40 percent EPS and revenue growth, which is significant, doesn't justify the valuation, but significant. And I'll say again, I think the stock is going to test that all-time high of $900, sometimes before earnings at the end of the month of October. The negative news cycle seems to be well in its rearview mirror, and I think the catalysts for it to go higher are there right in front of us. No pun intended. Tim, if you could ask Mary Barra about the supply chain and production cuts because of shortages, what would you ask her? I mean, doesn't this make your head scratch when you hear Tesla delivering record numbers of cars when GM and Ford are, are struggling to keep up? It does. And, and it certainly is a case where if you look at the price performance of the automakers and, you know, GM Ford down on a three month basis, Tesla, while only up about nine percent year to date, is up 40 percent or so off of those May lows. That The chart actually looks really interesting. And we talked about how it outperformed even uh, high multiple tech day when they're sold off. So in GM's case, what what is going on here? First of all, I, I do think that GM, as they've transitioned some of their production line, the the some of these these you know, interactive chips and some of the, the, the auto chips that I think are part of where they're coming up short are a testament to where the auto line has evolved and, and developed. But look, um, I, I think you have a case here where GM and Ford and other automakers are still making an argument. We're not going to see these sales fall off the table, that this is a delay, not deny 
uh, or destroy, and we've talked about this as well. Um, I think the story with Tesla is one where really, first of all, their ability to, to deliver the, you know, well above expectations in, in a year when, uh, you know, really a lot of others have not been able to do it is a company that's focusing on the EV opportunity. And, you know, if you listen to the comments out of Chamath at Delivering Alpha, that was what he said was one of the reasons why he wasn't as bullish on the valuation or the upside in the stock because they're really going to have to focus on the core business uh, and not some of the other drivers in, in, in kind of the Tesla valuation sphere. But look, it's nothing but a good day for Tesla, both in terms of the performance and, and the relative outperformance of a high multiple stock to a tape where other big multiple names got destroyed. All right. We've got a lot more ahead on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Stocks taking a nosedive and retail was no different. Karen's breaking down the name she's taking out of her cart. Plus, Facebook's fallout, the whistleblower, the power outages that sent the social stock plunging. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at Facebook leading social stocks dramatically lower today. Shares seeing their worst day since last October as a whistleblower sounds the alarm and the company is hit with a massive outage. Let's get to Julia Borson, who's got the latest. Hey, Julia. A massive outage indeed, Melissa. Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram reported down across the globe. Down Detector telling us that 11 million people have reported outages across those apps. Facebook indicating that it is not a hack. Its CTO tweeting out, quote, sincere apologies to everyone impacted by outages of Facebook-powered services right now. We are experiencing networking issues and teams are working as fast as possible to debug and restore as fast as possible. This comes on the heels of the whistleblower unmasking herself on 60 Minutes last night. She accused Facebook of prioritizing profits over safety and of driving discord and violence around the world. She filed eight complaints with the SEC alleging that the company did not accurately represent itself to investors. We will hear more from her when she testifies before the Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Safety. That's tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. And amidst all of this, Facebook filed its response to the FTC's amended antitrust complaint against the platform. Melissa, a lot going on today. A lot. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Um, Karen, there's a lot to unpack there, but what I thought was interesting is that this is not just an issue of whether or not Congress could regulate, but, um, you know, it's an SEC matter to determine if Facebook actually misled investors about how they handle misinformation. I'm wondering from your standpoint as an investor, if you think there's any merit to that. I'm not sure if there is, but I think actually some of these other issues are more pressing and weighing on the stock. I mean, today was sort of a, a perfect storm. You had a down market. You had the MAGA stocks just getting killed. Anytime you're a target of 60 minutes, you know, you hear that like tick, 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 and you know your stock's going to go down. They have the Senate confirmation coming up. I mean, and the outage of all of their products, or many of them. Um, so that's a lot of bad things happening in one day. Um, it's interesting to me that the sort of Facebook PR spin team it doesn't have Sheryl Sandberg anymore. I'm not sure they, they have some other voices that um, I thought there were some interesting comments um, that them, of them pushing back. However, putting all of that together, though, I still think this is just an extraordinary business. If you look at Twitter and Snap and some of the other social media stocks, they were down a lot, too. They'd have nowhere near the valuation of this business. If you back up the cash, it's trading lower than a market multiple. All that having been said, I bought some stock today. 
I added. I, am, I was long going into this. I added. Pete, would you have added? Did you add? Are you in this stock? What do you think here? It's one of the longest holds I've got, Mel. I actually still have a shred of a piece from the IPO to give you a little idea. So, yeah, I've, I've owned this for a really long time. I sell calls against it. I've added in the past. I did not add today. Actually, I did add some puts in the last couple of days only because I, it, I wanted protection. I, I'm not necessarily negative, but I know how th these things go. And we've seen these kind of deals in the past. Mark Zuckerberg, he, his private jet must go constantly back and forth to D.C. He's always in front of somebody out in Washington, D.C. And yet the Teflon man has been able to go through each and every one of these. And the stock goes higher and higher and higher. I don't know about this time being exactly the same. That's why I decided to choose to buy some puts. But I'll tell you, there was also some call buying today that made me really interested in, wow, now all of a sudden as we get down here to the lowest ends of the day, we see some very large call buying stepping in, Mel. So it is something I'm looking at and I may add, add to my stock position because they just have proven to us time and time again, they manage so well and there is nothing like what they've got in terms of the platforms that they own. If they were forced to break up, that would be different. But as long as they are together, this is an absolute behemoth. Let's talk more about the pressure mounting on Facebook. Joining us now is Loop Managing Partner and Fast Money friend Gene Munster. Gene, great to have you with us. Um, at some point, is there a straw that breaks the camel's back or a straw that questions the valuation of this stock? I mean, is this going to be the same as, as the other rounds of congressional testimony, controversies here, and then the next day it's gone and advertisers flock to the platform? I'm, I'm sad to report as someone who believes that Facebook, Instagram is toxic to our mental well-being. I'm sad to report that this is likely going to blow over. When Pete said this company is Teflon or Zuckerberg is, that theme resonated with me. And uh, in part, and I'm just going to boil it down to its most core pieces, it, what uh, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, what they have is a global directory. This is something that is uh, not even close to being replicated by, you know, it's 5x bigger than the next biggest uh, global directory if you put TikTok as one of those. And so as an investor, uh, you can't replicate that. And as an advertiser, you, can't you cannot uh, replicate that. And I think it, uh, you know, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back question, could this potentially be different? Is a question around what happens with ESG investors. And, do they see this as a reason why they are compelled to uh, lighten their positions? And I was uh, spending some time on Facebook investor relations page today, and I would recommend anybody go to ESG resources on Facebook investor page. And what you'll find is approximately 50 links of 50 reasons Facebook gives to ESG investors. Some of them I think are, are comical. But my point is that these, even these ESG investors, I think as they sit back and think about do they need to own Facebook, they can justify owning it based on a number of uh, reasons, uh, uh, 50 reasons that Facebook gave them. So um, I think that this company uh, is going to continue to ultimately move higher because of that core asset. Gene, it's Tim. Uh, yeah, to me, it's preposterous that this would be filed under an ESG. If anything, you know, ESG investors would start up with a portfolio that was not Facebook. Guys talked about this all the time. I, I guess, you know, my question really is at what point with 41 percent uh, ad price growth and, and essentially the, the digital ad space doing what it's doing, um, 
what's the multiple the stock actually can trade down to when it becomes too compelling, even for folks? Let's face it. A lot of investors have been investing in, in oil and gas or carbon footprint or things that, that you know, from an ESG perspective and whatnot, uh, they, they had to hold their nose on and they were very happy to do it at certain levels. And I guess my question is, yeah, where where does this stock go when it gets so cheap or is it, you know, could it be there even if you don't like the toxicity around Facebook and Instagram? I don't think we're there yet. I've got... Uh incredible respect for Karen and how she manages uh, her portfolio. I would uh, still be holding off here in part because I think the way this is going to play out, I don't want to get off topic here around uh, the debt ceiling is going to be a debt downgrade of the U.S. ultimately. Um, and then I think that's going to bring a lot of multiples down. And so to answer your question, where does this become uh, kind of a, a no-brainer? Will you buy it? It's probably around yeah. 20 times yeah. next year. Uh, we're not there. I think we're 25, 27 times. I'd much rather own Apple uh, on this pullback than Facebook. Gene, you know, you cited the ESG resources page, and I, I went there, and it's a good point that ESG is subjective. But on, on, on several accounts, I would imagine that Facebook would be ruled out. Um, least of all, the, the uh, share class structure would be number one in terms of a strike against it for governance. Um, and then... You know, if you are to believe that that Facebook did, in fact, conceal some of this research, that would be another. So even just even before any of the scandal, there there is a reason to to go against it. Do you have any idea of how how many funds or, or how widely held this is amongst ESG oriented funds? Like if that if that is a, a major push behind the stock? Unfortunately, I, I don't know that. I suspect that uh, that, that those funds are, are massive and. Uh, I suspect that it's a measurable amount. That's that's not particularly helpful. But I think that this is something uh, that, uh, fortunately, I guess for Facebook investors, they 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 don't need to really worry about uh, this this size, even if it's 10, 20 percent of the holdings, because I think that those investors are going to find ways to justify. Uh, humans find ways to justify their behavior. Investors are humans, and I think that um, you know if if the reason that you uh, owned Facebook was an ESG, I suspect that the vast majority of those will look beyond this and try to find other ESG. I just uh, want to anchor. It's a I guess a plea to investors here more broadly, uh, just to anchor that you know what companies ultimately make our lives better. Um, Facebook's going to crush it. Like, do not get me wrong. This metaverse, uh, we're going to be talking about this for the next 10 years because it's going to be so big. Facebook's got a pole position. The stock's going higher because of that. But I wish uh, they would just have better rails on what they're doing where some of those are coming to fruition now. If anything, that's what I really would love to see as investors just ask for better transparency. All great points, Gene. Always good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster of Loop. We've got some breaking news here out of the Fed. Let's get to Steve Leisman for that. Steve. Michelle, thank you very much. The uh, Federal Reserve now asking its ex inspector general, it began discussions to start an independent review of whether trading practices by certain officials uh, was in compliance with both the relevant ethics rules and the law. They say they will welcome this review and accept and take appropriate actions based on the findings. Again, the Federal Reserve asking uh, its inspector general, there's a separate uh, office of the inspector general for the Federal Reserve, asking them to do an independent review of whether trading activity by senior officials was in compliance with the ethics rules and with the law. Melissa? So this is not over for the two Fed officials who've tendered their resignation necessarily, Steve. Is that right? 
that how to interpret this? Uh, that, that, that is correct. Um, I mean, the idea that it, it would be potentially in compliance, uh, checking for compliance with the law creates certain legal jeopardy. Uh, I think uh, both officials have said they did not violate either the ethics rules yeah. or the law. Um, and uh, just so you know, Melissa, there, uh, the Fed chairman had said there's an, another a staff review as well. I don't know if this is in addition to or in place of a staff review that the uh, chairman had discussed. All right. Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. Coming up, Karen's hitting the sell button on one retail name today. What it is and what got her ringing the register. And later, we heard from Citadel's Ken Griffin today what he said about payment for order flow that got our attention. We'll bring you the comments when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a trade alert. Karen ringing the register on one retail name today. So, Karen, what is it? So it was TJX, and I sold half of my position today, which was a difficult thing to do. I, you know, it's a great company and uh, extraordinary management team. But what I've been thinking about and worrying about is to the extent that TJ Maxx really thrives on stores having excess inventory that they need to sort of dump at the end of the season and TJX can buy a lot of goods for a little amount of money. Are we now at the opposite of that? Are we in a scenario where retailers won't have enough for Christmas and what they do have, they'll be able to sell at full price and it, to the extent they have anything left over, they really won't need to dump it like they might in a year where sales come in light. So this made me think, all right, the supply chain to TJX could possibly be uh, not as robust. And so for that reason, and also I'd like them to have a better online presence. I know they started home goods. Um, I sold half. I'm sad to see it go, but I feel like I'd feel like a complete idiot if I didn't do it. And that came to pass where they didn't have enough goods. Is it a possibility, Karen, that the window closes um, in terms of getting the inventory on time for the holiday season for a lot of the department stores, et cetera, that usually offload to TJX. So TJX will actually be totally in the money once the holiday season passes and there's a lot of inventory left over simply because a container ship was, was late to the game. Late enough that they missed Christmas? I guess that's possible. I mean, you know, I were talking before and, you know, is there a possibility that TJX ends up with tons of... Um, Santa sweaters? You know, Santa Claus sweaters. Yeah, I, I, it is possible. It is. It is. That was a, you know, you, you have been on this Grinch who stole Christmas for a while. Correctly so, I should say. It's a risk. I, I hope that we're wrong and Christmas is merry for all. Pete, <laughs> you've been a fan of TJX, but I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of the inventory sort of give and take yeah. given the supply chain issues here. Absolutely, and I think Karen is really truly onto something. I am not in TJX right now, quite honestly, Mel, but I boots on the ground. I'm constantly in there. I'm in probably a TJ Maxx or a Marshalls <laughs> or a Home Goods at least once a day. I mean, I literally, they're all over the place near me, so of course I'm going to go there. I'm going to check things out. The one thing that I have noticed, Karen, is you are, are, are dead on. I have noticed that the racks themselves have gotten thinner and thinner and thinner, and it's they are definitely lacking supply from what I have seen. And it's not just here. It was in Las Vegas when I was just out there. It was in California not too terribly long ago. So wherever I go, I notice the same thing going on. So I think you're onto something. It does trade at a great multiple. I still love the concept. I'm not worried about the online, but I am worried about the supply chain. So I think it's probably a good idea for you to have taken off some 
and I think you'll probably be like me, at some point, you're going to be jumping back in. But we have to just see how this entire supply chain and all of that inventory is going to be distributed. It's just astounding that wherever Pete goes, he has time to stop in at a TJ Maxx or a Home Goods. I mean, where do you keep all this stuff in that fireplace behind hey, you? Mel, I mean, there, Mel, yeah. Mel, there's one right on the strip. I was out there for the last 10 days, and there's, there's a Marshalls literally right on the strip. I went in there, and I was like, this is terrible, and I walked out. So, uh, you know, it does show you they're, they're everywhere, and I think they're having inventory problems everywhere. All right, coming up, the Flow Show, Citadel CEO Ken Griffin sounding off on the heat around payment for order flow, what he said about a potential crackdown that caught our attention today. And later, betting on a bounce of two big trades we spotted in the options market today that could point to a tech turnaround. Stay with us. Payment for order flow is a cost to me. So if you're going to tell me that by regulatory fiat that one of my major items of expense disappears, I'm okay with that. Citadel founder and CEO Ken Griffin telling the Economic Club of Chicago today that he would be okay if regulators banned payment for order flow, if brokerage firms were still required to secure the best execution for their customers. His comments echo similar ones made by Virtu CEO Doug Sifu last, last month, right here on Fast Money. Ironically, it's an expense, right? So, you, right, it's an expense. So, like, in theory, like, our bottom line would improve. So, you may say to yourself, why are we doing this? Because I think it's the right thing. I think payment for order flow has created innovation and has enabled a company like Robinhood, which is a client of ours, to offer commission-free trading and to democratize the market and make uh, trading more available, more openly available. I believe in that passionately. I believe in what we have done with them. So from a Virtu perspective, you know, our earnings would probably go up. They must get something out of this though wouldn't you think guy and i know that you have you like virtu i mean in terms of the the stock you said as much uh after the interview with doug sifu but in terms of answering the question what do the firms get for payment for order flow it can't just be charity out of the goodness of their heart to help robin hood and, and other retail investors execute their trades it's got to be something else like maybe helping their algorithms yeah, I'm or sure something yeah, so, listen, I can't speak that intelligently about many things, uh, not least of which the, you know, how Virtu, you know, what, what payment for order flow means to Virtu or uh, by extension for a Citadel. But what I can say is that if it goes away for whatever reason, um, that's one pillar out of this Robin Hood um, ladder for sure. The other one being crypto. So how do you trade it? Well, if, if Robinhood is worth $34 billion, that's what the market is saying right now, and that's fine. Maybe it is. I don't think there's anything particularly innovative about them, um, except sort of some of the hair these guys have. I think NASDAQ should be worth twice that. So I look at Robinhood at $34 billion and NASDAQ at $31 billion. I said something's wrong here. So I look at it, and I, I just make the connection that NASDAQ should be a more valuable stock. Well, Sifu and, and Griffin had mentioned all of this has really enabled the explosion of online retail trading. And we explore that very topic along with the explosion of online gambling tomorrow in an all-new CNBC documentary. We're taking you inside Generation Gamble during the pandemic. Online wagering skyrocketed thanks in part to a growing acceptance of online gambling, mo mobile sports betting and trading apps. And now we're taking a dive into the effect it's having on young people like 23-year-old Julia Arpino.
Did it make you feel more confident that you weren't the only one in GameStop, that there was a whole Reddit army mm -hmm. behind the stock as well? Yeah, 100%. I think there was like a little bit of that camaraderie when you saw all the comments and all the Reddit stuff saying like, oh my gosh, we're all in this together, like diamond hands, hold your stock. And then it just tanked. And I kind of freaked out. I'm like, I don't want to lose any more money than I had lost. What we're seeing in retail investing is completely unlike anything we've seen before. Khalil Philander is a Washington State University professor who's completed one of the first surveys looking at the connection between online investing and gambling behaviors. People are starting to develop habits and very risky habits. Be sure to catch Generation Gamble tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. Coming up, a tech wreck options alert. What we spotted today in the options pits that could point to a big bounce will bring you the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer Cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of IBM. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Don't forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox with the CNBC Investing Club. Jim will be sending emails daily, writing for our website and appearing in videos online, all to give you his unique insights into the market. You'll also have a front row seat to what stocks Jim is trading in his charitable trust. He'll tell you all about his winners and his losers. So sign up right now. CNBC.com backslash investing club or just point your phone at the QR code on the side of the screen you see there, it'll take you right there. We've got a news alert on Facebook. Let's get back to Julia Borston. Julia. Well, Melissa, the outage appears to be over. Facebook and Instagram loading for me here in Los Angeles as well as for others in our newsroom uh, on the East Coast. Now, this comes after an outage that started at around 11.40 a.m. Eastern. Dow Detector telling us that over 11 million people um, reported that they had one of Facebook's family of apps, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, and WhatsApp not operating. But now it does appear to be operating, and it seems like that will slowly roll out. Still no official word on what went wrong here, Melissa, but I'm sure we will learn more in the next couple of days. A lot of questions still. Thank you, Julia. Meantime, check out the triple Qs, tumbling nearly 2.5% today, bringing the tech fund's losses to 5% over the past week. Today's activity sparking some interesting options trading as well. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, always very busy trading over 1.6 million contracts a day on average. Today, 140% of that volume, nearly 2.4 million contracts, puts outpacing calls by about 1.3 to 1, but that's less than the 1.5 to 1 it normally Sees, and the reason for that was a lot of short-dated upside call buying. The two most active contracts were the 352 and 355 strike calls, both expiring at the end of the week. It seems like some options traders are positioning for a potential bounce before the end of this week. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade Time, Tim. With a lot of work to do still, but a valuation that's very defendable and outperformance to even Apple this year, Intel, I think is well poised in this environment. Karen. Yeah, I'm happy about Merck and Ridgeback Drugs, Mountain Puravir, I hope I pronounced that right, but this $8 run in Merck I think is excessive, so I sold some upside calls. Pete. It's all about energy, Mel, I'm gonna give you Occidental. Guy. I'm with Pedro Halliburton. 